and nearer and nearer to the end of the path. Whether the end of the course is simultaneous with the end of the path, well, that's of course up to each person. At least the explanation is almost simultaneous. And that's about all I can look after. The completion of this passion is the springboard for liberation. Liberation in Pali is Vimuti, and it's usually described in two kinds of liberation. And it appears as if one can do it either way in the description, but from a practical standpoint that isn't so. In Pali it's called Chetto Vimuti and Panya Vimuti, and Chetto Vimuti is the liberation of the heart and Panya Vimuti the liberation of the mind well obviously both have to be liberated and it actually just describes the pathway that we have taken if we have taken the pathway through the jhanas then the liberation of the heart brings about the liberation of the mind and if we have taken the pathway through inside then the liberation of the mind liberates the heart. So, it's actually uh, 12 to a dozen. It just depends which way we have been going and which has been our primary focus of attention. I've already mentioned that there are three kinds of doorways that we can go through. They all lead to the same thing. But how to do that is probably the most interesting aspect of that and also the most important one. At the time when we have seen that there is nothing that can attract us, which that means that at that time we also don't cling. And Nibbana is said to be the end of clinging. That's one of the descriptions. The descriptions of Nibbana are not extremely plentiful because quite rightly the Buddha said well if you um, get there and if you attain it you'll know all about it and if you don't attain it what do you need to know what it's like because you won't understand it anyway well with our western analytical minds we usually want to know what it's all about is it worth all the trouble and that kind of question after all it seems to be rather difficult to get there and look at the, all the things one has to do. So one really would like to know, is it worth it? But actually, the question should be worded the other way around. Is that what we're doing all the time in our lives really worth all the trouble? Is that what we're trying to attain and achieve and become and be, is that worth all the trouble? And if we have come to the conclusion that it is probably far more trouble than it's worth, then we have an answer. Because how can we ascertain whether something is worth getting that we don't even know what it is like? That's not possible. We can't really have an idea of what it's like, so how could we think it's worth it? But we have something. We have our own ambitions, achievements, and worries, and problems, and cares, and concerns, 
and we have the body that creates no end of problems and we have the mind that creates no end of problems and that we can very truthfully have a look at and see is that worth it are we really doing that which is most important most of the time most people would say or think maybe they don't want to say it but they think it well it could be worth the trouble if namely mind and body could be worth the trouble if and then we have that famous if list and everybody has their own if list if everything was all right at home if i would be healthier if i were richer if i could have a nicer house if my children would be grown if i had a better job well there's no end to that if so that's what most people are on about so that dispassion has to dispel that if list by that time the insight has to be so profound that we realize no if list is ever going to do it for us even the best conditions under all the best circumstances are not going to provide that what we're looking for constant peacefulness it can't be found and by having seen that quite clearly we then turn away from that what we've got and we don't really know and can't say where we're turning to if we haven't been there the only thing that we can go by are the buddha's words that there is a state where there is absolutely no suffering but he has also given the insight instructions how it is possible to experience that and since that is a rather complete and total turnabout from what we are usually after very few people are willing to get on with it even to get this far very few people are interested it may sound all right but to do it that's a different story there are always some mind you the buddha said there are some people that have little dust in their eyes and that's the ones for whom he was teaching because when he first became enlightened he refused to teach he looked around with clairvoyance and saw that most people are so deep in their delusion of who they are and what they are and what they want that there was absolutely no hope that they could accept his teaching and he said to himself this teaching is much too profound and much too deep if i were to teach these people they could not accept that and that might be a vexation for me and then the story goes which is only symbolic of course that the highest deva came to see him and begged him to teach for the benefit of gods and men and one would uh, assume an inner vision arose and then he looked around again and he saw that there were a few people with little dust on their inner eye and he agreed and said all right 
for those people I will teach. They will be able to see the profundity of this. And the trouble with the teaching is not that it's not easy to understand. There's nothing difficult to understand. It's totally the other way around from what we usually think and do. And because of that, the resistance in most people arises pretty early in the piece. And as this resistance arises, it comes about because the ego, which we believe is in there, is acting up and saying, if you go any further, I might not like it. It might be against my livelihood. This ego might not be able to sustain itself. And therefore, most people wouldn't get even this far or even some steps back. It is a matter, very often, of what one has done already, what has been slumbering, so to say, in one's karmic residue. And if there has been a lot of this slumbering in there, it pops up the minute this teaching appears. And that comes up and says, aha, I'll continue where I left off, who knows how many lifetimes before. But if it's brand new, then, and oneself has nothing to do with this, because there are many other, so to say, people involved in this. If it's brand new, the mind will most likely balk at it. So when it comes to this point where we are quite imbued with the insight that nothing has any attraction, that nothing is really worth pursuing because it's all falling apart anyway, it's coming together and falling apart, but it doesn't have solidity within, it doesn't have any essence within, it's all constantly actually flowing away before we can grasp it. And that's why all this stress and strain. At that moment, we are ready to turn away from it. And this turning away is in the Buddhist terminology called that we are turning away from that which is conditioned. Now, you know very well that even the best meditation is impermanent. Why? Because its condition is impermanent, namely the concentration. Nobody is capable of, con of sustaining a, a fifth jhana or a fourth jhana for the rest of one's life. It's just not possible. So the condition for meditation, while the meditation is very desirable, but the condition is not permanent and therefore the result is not. So everything that has an underlying condition can never be totally fulfilling. And all we have to look at is this particular condition. But we can look at mind and body. What's the condition for the body, the four elements, the food, the nourishment that we put in, its proper functioning, that all the bits and pieces are in their right places, and so on. All these conditions have to be there. And its fundamental condition for existence 
is the craving to be. Now with the mind we know the condition, the cause and effect of it, we know that there are four bits of mind and that is the condition for all that thinking that's going on. Looking at those two things only, we realize that when these conditions are there, the others, mind and body, arises without them, mind and body isn't there. So it doesn't really have a solid foundation. And because it can never fully satisfy us any of that, we realize that that which has conditions is not fully satisfying. And the mind then says, without having experienced that which has no condition, it says, I will turn away from that which is conditioned and will turn toward that which has no condition. Well, obviously, at the very first time, the mind doesn't know where it's turning to because it has no idea what it is. But having had the information that there is such a thing because Nibbana is also called the unconditioned. So at least that much information is there. So the mind knows there must be something where there is no underlying condition. And if there's no underlying condition, then there can be no cause and no effect. In other words, there has to be nothing. In other words, there has to be absolute stillness. But the stillness has to be so absolute that nothing can interrupt it. Because if there's no condition, then there can be no factual existence of anything. Now, in order to really want that, one has to have seen the unsatisfactoriness of everything else. Because this is not getting something in addition to what one's got already. This is finally getting rid of everything what one has got. Here, there is no two ways anymore. There's not, well, I'd like something a little better. Maybe I can get another jhana. That does not exist here anymore. It's either or. So it is absolutely essential at this point that one has seen the total unsatisfactoriness of everything that can be manifested that exists. Unsatisfactory simply from the, from the standpoint also that it's constantly arising and passing away, that it's never completely fulfilling, that there's always stress with it because it has to be renewed, that there's always pressure on us because there has to be something, whatever it is, there has to be something. So with all that, the mind is ready to turn away from that and to turn toward that where none of this can happen. But the willingness to become that is the most important criteria of being able to do this. And maybe at this point you will understand the sentence, there's a path but no one to enter, there's Nibbana but no one to attain it a little better. Because there isn't me having Nibbana. That's not me getting the cherry on top of the cake. It's getting rid of the cake finally and forever irrevocably. And not so many people are willing to do that. Most people would like to put a cherry on top. But to get rid of the cake, who wants to do that? Most people think, if I bake it a little better, it will be all right in the end. In order to be able 
to get to that state of total stillness where there's nothing, there has to be the willingness, the utter and complete willingness to become nothing, to be absolutely nothing, to have no more hold on anything, to grasp at nothing, to cling to nothing, and therefore by not clinging, by not grasping, by not wanting, by not desiring, letting go of the whole kit and caboodle which is called me and be absolutely nothing. Now there's a simile given for that which may illustrate it or may not. All of these things at this point in the explanation the words no longer suffice. We only have the one language which we use in the marketplace which we use for everything else and then have to use the same language for that which is far beyond that because having done this we have then come to the fourth dimension and the fourth dimension is of course the one which is not very heavily populated so the simile given in, in the Visuddhimagga and the path of purification is this there is a tree growing on the bank of a river and this tree has a branch which is sticking out over the river and on this branch hangs a rope and with the momentum of practice one takes an, a jump to that rope which is the rope of materiality of the body which is hanging on the branch of selfhood and swings across the river and lets go and lands on the other side. Now the simile of the river is often given as the one that's dividing this side of ordinary people and life from the other side which is the side of the attainment of the the liberation which creates what the Buddha called Aryas, noble ones. People on this side of the river are called Puttujanas, worldlings. They live in the world and believe in the world. They believe that the world is not only all there is, but that it's all there is for them. And it can be bent a little to make it a little more comfortable. Bent in some direction, whatever direction one has figured out it should be bent in. Sometimes up and sometimes down, it doesn't matter. That's a worldling. But having taken that momentum of practice to get across the river with that swinging on that rope of the body of materiality attached to the branch of selfhood and letting go of the whole thing takes one across on the other side. As one comes across on the other side, one first wobbles a bit because if one jumps down, it's a bit wobbly there. And one has to first get used of living in a different dimension. So actually, that moment of getting across 
and hitting the other side is called technically the path movement. Maga, M-A-G-G-A. And it's one mind moment. And after that comes Pala, P-H-A-L-A, which is the fruit moment. These are technical terms. And we might as well know the technical terms, not necessarily the Pali, but the, the English technical terms, because at least we don't have any difficulty knowing what we're talking about, even if we don't know what it's like. But we know at least what we're talking about. The fruit moment is usually two mind moments. It can be three, but usually two. Now that past moment, that actual moment of having let go of this selfhood, because it has been totally understood that there is absolutely nothing in it. It's a delusion and it brings only trouble. And being completely willing and concentration-wise able to do this step, that moment is a moment of non-knowing. It's very interesting, actually, because it's a moment which I call the still point. Now, that's my own term the still point everything is completely still and because this is the only time that the observer and the observed become one and so there's no knowing when the observer merges into the observed there's nothing you can say about it so as long as we can describe our experiences there is even the smallest observer which is always called me. I mean, what other name could it possibly have? And that little me, or bigger me, or half-size me, is explaining what happened. But for the past moment, that is the difference between the jhanas and the past moment. Because the jhanas uh, can be very easily mistaken, especially the higher ones, for being a past moment. But the observer is gone in the past moment and the still point is a moment where everything stops one mind moment even quicker than that everything stops then therefore one cannot say anything about it except everything stops but the next moment the fruit moment is the one we can explain because that is the experience the observer's back and the observer says, an absolute relief, a burden has gone. There is this which is utter bliss. And it's entirely different from the bliss of the jhanas. The bliss of the jhanas, which is very nice and can only be recommended, is an experience which we're having which we can go to, which can be changes from one jhana to the next, whereas this particular bliss doesn't have the elation in it. It is a blissful feeling which has the relief in it, the relief of not having to attend to that which has been there all the time. It doesn't have to be attended to anything. Whereas when we have the bliss in the jhanas, we've got to attend 
to the concentration subject. Otherwise, we won't get it. But the bliss of Nibbana, one doesn't have to attend to anything. It's about the best distinction I can make with it. The um, distinction which is given in the commentaries is not extremely um, lucid. One can't really uh, use it very well. The fruit moment is there is. The bliss moment, it's the moment of realizing I've been somewhere else. And I've been somewhere where there wasn't anybody. And I've been somewhere where there was nothing. And the relief is like letting go of an enormous burden. And having let go of this enormous burden, the mind has had become has an enormous impact from that. The change for the mind from those three mind moments is the greatest change that can ever happen to the mind. Progressively, there are, there are three more of those steps to be taken. I'll explain those also um, in detail tomorrow. And they are, of course, changing the mind every time. The most, the greatest change is the last one, of course. But this particular one makes such an enormous impact because the changes to a different kind of, <laughs> different kind of homeland, I should say. One lives, or one can live, one doesn't always live but one can live as if one is living in a different country. And that transition has not been that momentary one. That's only the last step. That transition has been going on from the first moment of insight that mind and body are to all the way down to this moment. So it's not entirely unexpected. And yet, most people find when they take that first step into Nibbana that it takes them several days to get used to living in that new country. Some people only several hours, but some people several days because there is a different feel within. There's a big change within. One has to slowly get used to that. And so many people do need several days to get used to that, almost like jet lag, but uh, it's not uh, as unpleasant. It's much more pleasant. So, sometimes only a few hours. The fruit moment is also a moment of understanding. It's not only bliss, it's not only relief, but it's also a moment of understanding. And that understanding is usually comes after the fruit moment. It sort of, it is triggered by the fruit moment, but it comes in dribs and drabs. It can come all at once too, but it very often comes in dribs and drabs that one knows finally what one has actually done. Now oneself has, has the duty of recognition, but one can, of course, have confirmation from one's teacher. And that's a very important aspect. 
because being in a totally new country and speaking a new language, it's very helpful if the teacher says, yes, you're pronouncing it right. It's extremely helpful to have that kind of confirmation. But in essence, the person, him or herself, knows what they have done, particularly if there has been preceding information. This is technically known as stream entry. One has entered the stream to Nibbana and can never get out of it again. Having got that far, there is no um, need anymore to wish, to desire. It's all one can do. And it is said that it can take no more than seven lifetimes. Those people who have done it are determined to do it in the same lifetime. It's impossible not to want to get to the end of this um, work in this lifetime. It may not happen, but certainly the impetus for it is there. A stream entry, and the person who does it is called a stream enterer. These are the technical terms. Nibbana is non-burning. Ni, non, bana, burning. And it actually depicts in the language what there is, what is happening. The inner heat, which is accompanying our desires, our wishes, our um, strivings, that inner heat is to a great degree minimized. Now this is only the very first step and of course there's plenty left to do and I will explain to you tomorrow the ten fetters with which we are bound and in this very first step only three of those are dissolved. So we've got seven more to work with. And also, the first three steps into Nibbana only dissolve five of the ten. So the last one is the last, has to still do half the work. But having seen this enormous relief, which is incomparable to anything else that one could possibly experience. The freedom of the mind is much greater than ever before. But interestingly enough, in this very first one, greed and hate aren't even touched. The fetters which we're losing are not greed and hate. So you can imagine how very strongly they are embedded within us. If even the first glimpse of Nibbana doesn't even touch greed and hate. And maybe that will also finally explain why the world looks as it does. It is a complete and utter explanation why we are in a human realm, in a world, which has all these difficulties. 
because it is governed by greed and hate. This particular step is best taken after jhana. Any of the jhanas will do. The first two are not so suitable because they're a bit exciting and an excited mind doesn't do this very well. In fact, an excited mind is liable to say very subdued but still say, look at me, I can do the jhanas. And that, of course, is useless for letting go of me. But the higher jhanas will not generate such a, um, such a reply to oneself or such a um, possibility of being proud of it, particularly if one has done it several or many times because it's just a pathway of meditation. But after any of the higher jhanas, it is ex- that is the point where the first thing that has to happen is that one recognizes the impermanence and therefore unsatisfactoriness of the jhana. That's why I have told you, please, the first thing when you finish, look at it and say, look at it and see, see, that too is impermanent. Then, being not satisfied with the jhana, recognizing that the Buddha's teaching promises something which is totally satisfying. And having promised that, the Buddha's teaching also says that the only possibility to get there is if one gives up this delusion that there's somebody here that can get there. And the willingness to give up this particular troublemaker called me. The willingness to give that up completely. And no longer be a separate entity. Not with the thought in the mind that, well, after I've done all that, I can be a separate entity again. That, of course, doesn't help at all. It's got to be a final decision. A final decision, I no longer want to be an entity. Never mind separate, an entity. I'm willing to give up whatever it is that I'm considering myself to be and one could say return to the matrix of existence or to dissolve into nothingness or to be that which underlies all but no entity, nothing that's called me. So that determination has to be there and whatever words one uses for that is totally immaterial. One doesn't have to use any words at all. It has to be an inner decision. Some people do need words for that and some people just need the thought. Some people even need a picture for it. It doesn't really matter. It has to arise out of the insight that all that that we see is nothing but a show with very interesting backdrops. And then, having had that understanding, having made that determination, 
one so to say can send the mind off like a carrier pigeon which is all symbolic I mean the mind's never going to be a carrier pigeon but to send it off to experience a still point with that determination in the mind I want to experience that which has nothing in it no coming, no going no condition, no nothing I'm willing to give myself up and then hope for the best as one sends the mind off if the mind is mature ripe ready and that giving up of oneself is totally sincere not as a wish but as a completeness of insight it can happen it can also happen spontaneously if the mind is mature but the precondition is always the insight the understanding and the realization of that whole unreality in which we live although it looks so real this optical illusion in which we live that has to be the precondition for it and having had the jhanas or any kind of very concentrated state and being totally willing to do that it is possible and as it becomes possible then one can try more than once of course maybe it isn't uh, happening the first time one sends the mind off in fact it isn't unusual to experience that one comes so to say to the edge of this river and quite willing to grasp this rope and is hanging on it and can't let go and swings right back and comes back to this side of the river now again it may not be that picture it may be a different one it feels as if there's a rubber band we've been here in this delusion for so long that it's not that easy to sever that the work one has to do is not something that one does very quickly so we have to sever the delusion and sometimes it really feels as if one is glued to it even though one has the best intention one has actually realized all this me business is nothing but trouble but one hasn't possibly realized the connotation of all that maybe one really is sick and tired of having problems so one wants to eliminate this person but that too is not the right approach we don't eliminate anything we want to get rid of the delusion we want to go back into that which is the underlying ground where there is no delusion but there's also no entity there's nothing there to be nothing doesn't sound so appealing to most people well one has to find, try and find out whether it is appealing however having once become nothing it's not possible to become something again so it's pretty final and it doesn't mean that one loses mind and body not at all a body is the same as always it doesn't even get a halo and the mind of course is different the mind is less burdened 
the mind is less attached, less infiltrated with all that goes on. It doesn't have that close connection. It sees everything from a little higher, little extended perspective. It's a little bit stepping back and sees it all from another perspective. So that all that's happening, while it's all still happening, and mind you, this first step is also interesting in so far, that while the me is completely gone for that one moment, unfortunately, it comes back. (laughs) And what happens is this, that the person who has done that, unless he or she reminds him or herself of this happening, will run around with a me again. And every time that me becomes really unpleasant because it wants something or it doesn't get what it wants or it gets upset or whatever it's doing, that, of course, the person remembers what it's like not to have it. And remembering that, of course, brings immediate relief. But that person only knows it when he or she deliberately puts her mind or his mind on it. It isn't a condition which is constantly available. But what happens is that such a person never believes anymore that there is a person there. But the feeling of it only arises every time he or she puts the mind on it. So that's only the first step. There's three more. We'll talk about those other three tomorrow. Any questions? This is the time to ask them. It comes after discussion, yeah. After discussion. Yes. Yes. More more clarity. Yes. No, not at all. It's not at all. Because the uh, uh, input into the senses can be much clearer and purer and sharper, but it doesn't have to enhance the desire. I mean, the green looks greener, doesn't it? Mm hmm. Sure. But don't worry, if you get back to the city, it's all gone. (laughs) 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 But it doesn't enhance the desire. Anything else? All quite clear, huh? Um, How would you describe that sense of um, nothing, not me, in, in Christian terms? 
in Christian terms, only he who gives up his life will have eternal life. Give yourself up and you've got everything. But then, of course, eternal life doesn't mean immortality. It's actually a fact, and I've never taken any interest in it before until I tried to understand the Buddha's teaching, but <clears throat> having understood them to some degree, whatever degree that is, that's the same degree I can now understand Christianity. Christianity is totally uh, imbued with symbolism. And if one takes these symbols as literal, then one's in trouble. And one's supposed to believe things which are unbelievable. But as soon as you see them as symbols and through the Buddha's teachings, the symbols become fairly clear, and most of them anyway, then the whole, mat- the whole matter is dissolved. No problem. would be nice if somebody was, would sometime maybe uh, write a book or something like that and explain all these symbols. Yes. I'm sorry, I haven't understood the question. Can you repeat that? Our ego rebels, yes. Oh, (laughs) well, sometimes the rebellion is so strong you can't do anything. You have to do and go practice Tai Chi, I guess. (laughs) <laughs> but if you if you know if you know that the ego is rebelling then you can do something but if you don't know that it's the ego rebelling if you think that the whole thing is just that and so on then you know that then you can do something so it depends on your the insight that you have into yourself. You know? Does that answer the question? Was that the question? I'm not sure. <laughs> mm. Oh well, yes, skeptical doubt, of course. If it's skeptical doubt, <coughs> it's uh, the uh, the recommendation against skeptical doubt is well, well yes, concentration and. Uh, noble friends, noble conversation, being together with wise and mature people and studying the Dhamma. That's a recommendation for skeptical doubt. But <clears throat> if the ego rebels, it need not only be skeptical doubt, there are other things the ego can do. It, uh, the skeptical doubt is only one thing it, it can do. It can become indifferent. It, uh, it can be, become superior. I know all that already. It can become inferior. It's too much. I can't do it. It, it has all sorts of uh, um, wiles that it can employ. Well, skeptical doubt has a, a perfectly uh, clear uh, antidote. Yes. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, I, I see exactly what you mean. <laughs> it's a very good thought, actually. But um, you can look at it a little differently. Obviously, there is a person that is sitting with the relative truth of me, right? We've got to work with what we've got. Even though I have explained the pathway to a certain uh, conclusion, uh, the, uh, the actual uh, actuality is that there is a me sitting on the pillow, right? So this me is having all sorts of trouble. And to uh, treat it with kindness and be uh, loving towards it, it should um, help it to be less resistant and less ornery, but be a little more giving and, and uh, a little uh, softer because it's being treated nicely. One, one shouldn't expect it to become even more superior or, or uh, skeptical. One should expect it to be a little, uh, uh, you know, sort of uh, accommodating. Yeah, but that's... Yeah, well, if one believes that, of course, one is lost. And that belief is not very sustainable, is it? I'm all right the way I am. No. No. No mother believes that. All mothers are trying to educate their children. They love them, but they want them to educa educate them so that they grow. They don't want to keep them the way they are. If they keep them where they are, they'll never grow up and be any any be a self-reliant uh, person. No, a mother that is looking after a child with wisdom, and one hopes that, that most mothers do that, will see to it that the child lo is loved, cared for, and grows spiritually, physically, and mentally in, in all aspects. So it's uh, it's fine, the child's fine, but it's got to grow. Mm -hmm. So what, what you're um, saying is more um, not is not being um, self-sufficient, but having that kind of feeling about the self as I'm I'm all right. Let the whole world do what they like. You know that nobody in their right mind really has that. That's a defense mechanism. That's a defense mechanism that arises when, when there are too many things that one actually should be changing. Hmm? And complacency, yes. Yes. Well, complacency, of course, is, the, um, uh, is a total enemy. If we're complacent, uh, it's a total enemy. And that's, uh, that, that can arise, certainly, complacency. And if it does, well, one just got to be patient and wait till the ego says, okay, I'm no longer complacent, I'll listen now. <laughs> mm. 
Yeah, that's great. It's <laughs> a very good question. One lives with that person as long as one can stand it. <laughs> and you really develop it. Because either you develop it or you go berserk. <laughs> it's one of the best teachers there is. It's a marvelous teacher. The only way you develop that is by looking at that person as your teacher, that you learn to love the unlovable. And when you learn to love the unlovable, because it's all one and the same and nothing discriminating, you just love the unlovable, then you've made it. So you're always forever grateful to that person for his or her arrogance. Because that's how you learned it. You see, it's very easy to love a little kid that's uh, just fallen down, is crying because he hurt his knee, eh? It's very easy. But to love someone who's arrogant and thinks he knows it all or she knows it all, well, that's a little more difficult. And that's where we learn it from, from the hard ones. And some people are not so fortunate to ever have that kind of person near. And uh, then they might not learn it, you know. Which I don't mean to say that one should look for somebody like that. <laughs> yes. Is what? Um, uh, very important. Very important. It's um, in our tradition the teachers called the Karyana Mitta, the noble friend, and. Uh, especially at the beginning of the pathway, indispensable. Absolutely indispensable, because otherwise you don't know where you're going. You, haven't even know, you don't even know that there's a path. I mean, how would you know that there's a path if you haven't got somebody to tell you that there's a path? Having seen the path clearly, having been explained every step on the way, and having gone a few steps oneself, and having enough self-discipline to keep going, then the teacher only becomes someone that one can possibly confirm or once um, uh, practice with once in a year or something like that, once a year. But in the beginning you have to be shown the path. It's indispensable. Great help. Hmm? Helpful. Very helpful. I really don't know. Um, yes, if it's complementary and uh, not contradictory, I think it would be good. You know, but if it's contradictory, then the mind starts thinking, he says this and she says that. And now they're probably both wrong. Then I'm going to do it myself. That's usually what happens. But if it's complimentary, it's okay. <laughs> I really don't know. I haven't had the good fortune to listen to other teachers for years. I have no time. It's not that I don't want to. I'd love to. But I just have no time. So I really don't know what they're saying. I, ha I really don't know. So I'm, I'm on the spot. I can't answer properly. You know. If you can, yes, yes. It's uh, one of the teachers. 
has given that simile uh, <laughs> it's really good he said that uh, if you want to dig a well uh, on your property in order to get water and you go to the southwest corner of your property and start digging and then you dig for 10 feet and there's no water so you said oh I must have gone to the wrong spot I go to the northeast corner now and so you go to the northeast corner <clears throat> again you dig 10 feet and again you don't get any water and you do that 10 times you've dug 100 feet and haven't got a drop of water but if you'd stayed in the same spot it's most likely that after 100 feet of digging you would have got some water so it's, uh, it does make sense doesn't it yes Christopher of course why separate just do it just do it as one keeps on doing these things the whole thing falls into place don't don't separate if you can feel some lovingness towards yourself just do it in any manner or form that works and don't try to analyze who's giving that to whom just do it have a feeling of inner contentment and warmth and um, being part of the whole thing like I'm a child of the universe I have a right to be here it's part of this beautiful inscription that was found in an old church in Baltimore it's a long one I, only, I can't remember it all mm. yeah. so don't analyze it just do it somebody else had their hand up yes. what is the well, now I, I just use the two uh, interchangeably. Uh, it's, a, it's the same thing when I'm talking. Now, I know that in some of the uh, psychologists uh, are using it in different ways, but um, Buddha did not use the word ego, he just used the word self. But because it often is totally unacceptable to people to talk about that there isn't a self there uh, I say the word ego because people have in English we have that idea that ego is a no-no anyway you know and actually I'm, I mean exactly the same thing okay yes Harry yes absolutely I don't mean many but some and some have uh, more than stream entry which I will explain tomorrow the next thing after that absolutely it's, uh, it doesn't matter what uh, you do it's, uh, I don't know whether yes they have kids too yes <laughs> well I'm afraid all the ones I know are Buddhists <laughs> I don't know any others but uh, I have read a book of a woman who used to be a, a Catholic nun um, what's the name of the book huh? yes that's right what's the name of the book uh, the self or something or the no self 
that's right. Roberta Roberts, is it? Yes. Uh, she used to be a Catholic nun, and then she got out and married and had two kids. And then she went to a self-retreat in the mountains somewhere, and then she had this experience, and she wrote a book about it. And uh, it's quite definite that it is the same experience. The problem was, for her, unfortunately, she started reading Zen books, where this sort of thing is not spelled out. In Zen, the same um, goal is there and the same achievement, but it isn't spelled out the way I'm spelling it out. So she couldn't find any explanation. And from that she concluded that Buddhism didn't know anything about it either. And her Christian friends didn't know anything about it either. So she felt totally isolated and bereft, whereas she could have found it in the, in, uh, the Buddhist books of this tradition, but that she didn't know about. So yes, it is quite possible to do it when you're not a Buddhist, certainly. You don't have to be affiliated to anything. Uh, being a human being is totally sufficient um, it does help if you're religiously inclined it helps greatly but even that's not a necessity it's only a help anything else? That sounds like a Zen paradox, doesn't it? the Buddha was able to express it. That's why we have his teaching. Yes. interpret them in a Buddhist framework would have helped her not to feel isolated or, or um, totally sort of other than others. It would have helped her to understand the experience easier and feel connected. She felt very isolated afterwards. As I remember right, I a while back. No, she was up in the mountains. Yes, that's right, she couldn't find anything, and the fathers uh, just completely ignored her, and then everyone started to say she was crazy, and 
she then disrobed and married and um, did another retreat. Oh, yeah, that's one in the mountains, yeah. And it sort of had, uh, I don't know if she, she didn't have the same experience, but the experience deepened. Yeah. And uh, then somebody suggested that she had read some Zen literature, but later they suggested she go to university and study some Buddhism, she might find the answers. And that was uh, many years after she had been married, she did find the answers in Buddhism. She wrote a second book, but I didn't read it. So that's where that's where Yeah? Mm. And she wrote a second book about it, so then she got the explanation. So then she had the understood experience, apparently. <laughs> yeah. So that's quite helpful. But first have the experience, and then we will, I'll help you to understand it. <laughs> Please put the attention on the breath for just a few moments. Think of all the good things that you know about yourself. Don't allow those things to come up which you don't like about yourself. Just think about all the good things, those that you really appreciate, all the qualities that you're very happy that you have them, all the things that you've done in the past that you're happy that they've happened. Remember all that. And fill yourself with contentment and appreciation. Feeling quite at ease. And full of determination to continue in that way, in that way of goodness. Now think of all the good things that the person sitting nearest you has probably done in his or her life. Just conjure them up. And then fill that person with your appreciation. With your gratitude for his or her presence.
Now think of all the good things that everyone here has done in their lives. Just think about the things that people do, the good things that they're happy about. And be happy with everyone about all the good deeds that everyone has performed. Have joy with everyone and fill each person with joy and appreciation. Think of all the good things that your parents have done. Appreciate them for it. Have joy with them. Fill them with the joy and your appreciation. Think of all the good things that your nearest and dearest people have done. Or said or thought. Appreciate them. Have joy with them. Fill them with that appreciation, with your joy. so that they know how much you care. Think of your friends and remember all the good things that you know about them. Appreciate them, have joy with them, fill them with those feelings. Let them know how much you care. Think of all the people you know, 
and what you know about them remember the good things you know about them the good words, the good deeds appreciate them have joy with them let them know how much you care Think of the difficult person in your life and remember all his or her good deeds and good words. All the goodness that you can conjure up and appreciate that person for all that goodness. Let that person have your care and concern. Think of people everywhere. Think of the good things they do and say and think and how difficult it is to remain a good human being and to make that effort over and over again. Rejoice with the people that you can think of everywhere for their goodness have compassion for the difficulty that presents and let them have your care and concern and appreciation. Now put your attention back on yourself. Feel the contentment that comes from appreciation and compassion. Fill yourself with contentment and surround yourself with peacefulness. Being totally protected and at ease.
May people everywhere appreciate each other. <laughs>